friends, Marsh here with a gauntlet news update. The episode you are listening to, episode 66, The Sweet Science, encountered some technical difficulties. I fucked up really bad and Andy's vocal track was not recorded. Uh, However, we were able to salvage our lively conversation about boxing films specifically by amplifying Andy from my microphone, which uh, admittedly sounds pretty bad, uh, especially with me smoking and giggling all over him at various points, but uh, you can understand what he says for the most part, and uh, it's at the very least listenable. So we thought it was worth it to, uh, you know, throw it out there, regardless of it uh, not meeting our uh, audio quality standards. Uh, If you're new to the show, I gotta say, uh, it usually, I think, sounds uh, pretty decent, uh, especially considering the fact that Andy and I often record underneath a flight path next to uh, an army of cicadas. At any rate, I promise the microphones will work next time. Now, for the good news. The Gauntlet Mixtape Volume 2, covering episodes 11 through 20 from No Escape to All Creatures Great and Small, is going to drop this Thursday, September 15th. A little special treat for the Gauntlet listeners after our uh, technical difficulties here. The mixtape features songs and clips from Gauntlet classics like The Lusty Men, Exorcist II Heretic, Night Riders, Halloween Resurrection, Far From Heaven, Stemple Pass. So look forward to that with, of course, uh, many more mixtapes to come. Enjoy the show, uh, if you can. This has been Gauntlet News. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stas Ulis, and with me tonight are Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic for the week. And the other two hosts are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic, or potentially buck up against the topic. Uh, It's my turn this week. I was up. My opportunity to pick the topic. And as I mentioned at the end of our episode last week, uh, recently, I had watched a, a rather mid-boxing film that I had never seen before called Gladiator, uh, set in Chicago, 
co-starring Brian Dennehy as a sort of like corrupt underground Chicago boxing promoter. Yes. It was like, okay, it was not great. And I, you know, it did what a lot of like okay movies can do. You know, they make you think about better movies dealing with similar subject matter. You know, you start going, this ain't no, you know, whatever. You You start thinking of better movies. And it got me thinking about boxing movies and how many great boxing films there are. Uh, as I think you both know, I'm a big fan of boxing as a sport. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's quite sad today, the state of boxing. It's it's really, a, 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 calling it a dying sport is, is probably even too generous. You know, when you consider how huge uh, boxing used to be, uh, I mean, these were international events that, that people around the world could, could tune into. You know, Muhammad Ali was arguably at a certain point, and perhaps still to this day is, you know, one of the most recognizable athletes in history, um, you know. So uh, I just got a taste for a little bit more of that, you know, pugilism on screen. Thought we could celebrate the sweet science a little bit with some movies depicting that great combat sport. So that's what I asked the boys to bring me. And they sure did. Uh, and boy, the films were, were very entertaining. Though, at, uh, what do we have this week? I think we've got we've got. Uh, a boxer who was known for his dancing skills and, and another boxer who seems to be much more interested in singing rather than learning how to block a punch. Uh, <laughs> I'm very excited about the two movies. So, you know, we should just bring out our fighters, bring them both into the ring and see what happens tonight. So why don't we start with the earlier film? Uh, Ryan, why don't you tell us what you brought? Well, funny enough, even though I'm a bit apathetic towards boxing, it's not that I have any distaste for it. I've liked all the boxing movies I've seen and boxing matches I've seen. Like, I've been entertained, but I'm certainly not an expert on the sport and not a follower. I don't really know the intricacies of of boxing just beyond some some of the simple rules of it you know but when you did pitch this topic i knew what i wanted to watch right away for the past few weeks i've had this film queued up and i've been waiting to just press play on it so when you when you told us we're going to do boxing movies i thought ah perfect i know exactly what i want to watch uh and that film is the 1942 film directed by the great raul walsh gentleman jim Gentleman Jim is set in the year of our Lord, Raoul Walsh, 1887. The film begins in the year that Raoul Walsh was born. And that was one of the reasons that drew me to the film, especially, and just in general, all Raoul Walsh films. A man sort of, you know, had had his becoming in the 1890s, and that's just fascinating to me. We have someone who often was making films set in the late 1800s, and it was an experience that he had lived firsthand, and it's just one of those interesting overlaps time-wise with, with cinema. 
cinema. And so this film starts in 1887, and we're following Errol Flynn as the great boxer James Corbett. And at the beginning of the film, he's just a banker. He's attending underground late night boxing sessions somewhat illegal the you know the the standardization of boxing isn't really um as i understand it uh, set in stone yet at this point in history in in the united states and during one of these underground boxing matches it gets busted by the cops errol flynn as james corbett gets thrown into prison along with a bunch of other people who are hanging out that night but one of those people who, who was locked up is uh, a judge at his bank, someone of extremely high status. And James Corbett is, you know, real fast talk, and he's real clever on his feet. Uh, he can not only dance around the boxing ring, as we see in this film, but he can dance himself out of just about any situation with uh, some grace and, and agility. And he, you know, he covers for this judge, and this gets him a nice little raise uh, at work. But then it also sort of leads, you know, through a series of incidents to him finding himself involved with the local athletic association, the Olympic club, and it sort of paves the way for a new set of boxing to take place in the United States. They decide to, why don't we, instead of having these big ruffians, these men that look like bowling balls causing a ruckus all over the place and being extremely crude and boorish, what if we turned them into gentlemen of sorts? And the idea that's, uh, I believe, pitched by the judge at one point is to bring in the Marquess of Queensberry rules into boxing, which is uh, British rules that are more standardized and allow for a more gentlemanly behavior in the ring. The majority of this film, then, is watching James Corbett sort of rise as a boxer and eventually you know after working his way up come head to head with john l sullivan played by the great ward bond an extremely spirited performance as a tough talking irishman but beyond that it, it is exploring this idea of a gentleman jim corbett does come from a lower class or middle class background you know he's got a big rowdy irish family and he's often finding himself odds with the standards of being a gentleman that are placed upon him whenever he's in these situations or especially at the club getting drunk with with his buddies and again even beyond that this film is sumptuous it's so unbelievably entertaining it's it's extremely enjoyable ride there is some really impressive camera work throughout so many details that are highlighted through its deep focus it's unbelievable large-scale fighting sequences that seem to employ hundreds of extras. Just the amount of people that were involved in this film putting together this, it's just a great product of the Hollywood machine. Um, and it's got a lot of really unique flourishes, too, that I wasn't necessarily expecting that we can get into a little bit later. Um, one of them coming a lot through the editing in the film, which really impressed me, provided by the great Don Siegel. Um, who really did some pretty inspired stuff um, when you're looking at this film, especially as it's presented as sort of a, a scrapbook as we enter into the past of the 1880s. Um, and again, as I mentioned, Raoul Walsh, having grown up in the 1890s, he actually at one point did meet James Corbett. This film is an adaptation of that biography, um, but there is like a bit of a personal connection here, right? It's sort of like John Ford making his Wyatt Earp movies. You've got a guy who literally knew the man that kind of takes on this mythic status. Raul uh, Walsh also knew Wyatt Earp. Oh, well, then there you go. Yeah, and exactly. And Pancho Villa. 
but yeah, so I'm excited to talk about it. I loved it. I had a great time. Um, it's a very cool movie. And yeah, that's Gentleman Jim from 1942. Thank you, Ryan. Marsh, who's your fighter? Well, I was really happy <laughs> that Ryan picked Gentleman Jim because it's one of my favorite boxing films. And I was overjoyed that he was going to pick uh, such a classic and, and one of my personal favorites. And so in a sense, I felt kind of uh, liberated uh, from having to maybe, you know, pick mm-hmm. a classic because I do want to shout out, you know, like personally, I'm a big fan of the kind of like late 40s noir boxing movie. So uh, Body and Soul, the Robert Rawson film and The Setup, the Robert Ro- Wise film with the great Robert Ryan, a boxer himself. Uh, Those films I love, but I thought, you know, although they're kind of like downbeat compared to something like Gentleman Jim, I wanted to do something a little more unexpected. I mean, I think that's part of the strategy a boxer takes into the ring. You know, it's like you want to surprise your opponent. You don't want to do something predictable, right? Like the time Rocky... Uh, switched his stance you know he comes out going left-handed and his opponent's like what is going on you know um to say nothing about to say nothing of the rope dub which i think uh we see a little bit of in this film my eyes just glazing over as they're tossing around these <laughs> these boxing turns i mean i have an idea of what you're talking about but you know so our listeners have a perspective i think anyone who listens to the show knows about me so <laughs> So I wanted to find something a little more unconventional and um, I remembered as well, of course, you know, uh, Andy loves classic Hollywood musicals. We even did a whole episode about it. And when I came across the chance to pick a boxing musical, uh, I couldn't pass it up. And in my own sort of selfish, auteurist viewing habits. That's also part of uh, why I picked this film. So uh, the film I chose is the 1962 boxing musical starring Elvis Presley, Kid Galahad. Kid Galahad is a very loose remake of a very classic Warner Brothers film from 1937. Uh, And the original Kid Galahad was a very big sort of like gangster boxing movie. It was Warner Brothers, so it had Edward G. Robinson, who turns a bellboy into a fighter. It's also got Betty Davis and Humphrey Bogart, and it hit. It was a huge success in the 30s and really brought like the gangster element into the boxing movie as only Warner Brothers could. And so flash forward to 1962, the Hollywood system is basically collapsed. Uh, and this is a United Artists Mirish Company film. They are reappropriating this famous film and reshaping it to be an Elvis vehicle. So it really doesn't resemble uh, the original uh, too much, other than, I guess, in just like vague outline and spirit. Uh, and of course, 
the name of the boxer as given to him by the characters in the film, Kid Galahad. So the story um, of the film uh, kind of ties into Elvis's real life because he had only gotten out of the army about two years prior to the making of this film, and it opens with Elvis coming home from the army, and he returns to the place of his birth, Cream Valley in the Catskills, where he ends up sort of getting involved with the goings-on of Grogan's Gaelic Gardens, a Catskills retreat and training center for boxers and aspiring boxers. This establishment is run by uh, the fail son of its now deceased owner, Willie Grogan, as played by Gig Young. Uh, And he is uh, a very kind of uh, shady guy who owes a lot of money around town and to gangsters. And he's, uh, he's up to his neck in trouble. Uh, but enter Elvis. And he first is hired to become a sparring partner, and they quickly learn that, hey, this guy can, uh, if he can't really box, he can take a punch at least, you know, so, and and throw one when necessary. And so uh, the film chronicles uh, Walter, a.k.a. Elvis, I'll probably just refer to him as Elvis or Galahad, yeah. uh, although his name is Walter Gulick. Um, he, uh, you know, gets involved in this whole boxing thing. He gets involved in a romance, uh, but all the while he just wants to be a car mechanic and also sing songs with his friend and his woman. So it is kind of uh, interesting, I think, in, in how disinterested his character is in boxing in an ostensible uh, boxing film. The film was directed by the great B-movie director Phil Carlson, which is sort of my selfish reason for wanting to watch this movie. I'm uh, going to watch every Phil Carlson movie ever made, for better or worse, and I hadn't seen this one yet. <laughs> Carlson, of course, is known for his sort of amazing run of B-movies in the 1950s, which are characterized by uh, extreme violence, lots of punching and slapping and crime and corruption. Um, he had a much different kind of 1960s, again, as the, the system fell apart. He directed Dean Martin in uh, a Bond knockoff, The Silencers, which was a huge hit for uh, Columbia in a film that I find like borderline on watchable but um (laughs) he did a lot of yeah he did a lot of different stuff you know and and this was one of the things he did it doesn't seem like a natural fit for carlson but once you look at the film a little more it kind of makes sense because there's this whole gangster subplot involving gigs young character willie and these mobsters and I should also mention that Charles Bronson is the trainer of Elvis in this movie. So there is an element of tough guy shit. Uh, and I would go as far to say that, yeah, this movie being a star vehicle uh, has is kind of two movies. Maybe three. <laughs> Maybe three. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get then we'll, we'll break all that down as we go along then. I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. But... Uh, Yeah, it's uh, shot in deluxe color. It looks really nice. And uh, that's Kid Galahad. Thank you. Thank you both.
Um, I had never seen either of these films. Oh, uh, all right. Yeah, so so that was a, a plus uh, for me, especially being such a fan of boxing, uh, you know, boxing and cinema. So I was very, very excited to watch both of these films, and I, I definitely enjoyed them. I think for for very different reasons <laughs> in in each, uh, in each case. Uh, but but yeah, you know, I was very, very impressed with these films, and and you know, for all of their, uh, you know, all of the things that I can contrast between these two very different experiences. You know, at their core, I think they share what a lot of boxing films do, especially in their central characters. Uh, both of these uh, protagonists, uh, despite very different sort of, you know, styles and personas, uh, are both at their core, you know, what I think you find in a lot of boxing films, especially for the, the boxing character, which is a member of the the, the struggling working class and, and someone who sort of almost incidentally comes into the world of boxing, right? You even kind of mentioned that in your introduction, and that's definitely the case in Kid Galloway, that boxing becomes a means to an end for these people who are struggling to get out of their social position, their class woes. But I think from there, there's a lot of uh, departures between these two guys. <laughs> because in the case of, of Gentleman Jim, this is someone who sort of reluctantly gets into boxing, kind of almost like just sort of is, is pushed into it, uh, but then comes to really, really fall in love with it, you know, to really sort of make it the reason for their being, you know, like it comes to really define who this guy is, and especially to feed his, like, his narcissism and his arrogance and his egomania. Uh, but in the case of Kid Galahad, watching that film, I couldn't help but think that boxing was, was the, the last thing on his mind, even when he was in the ring. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Elvis... He's got, you know, so many other things he'd rather be doing than than boxing, which became for me ultimately like what I found uh, perhaps most amusing about the film and his journey specifically. Well, interestingly enough, Andy, both films had the same trainer. Mushy Callahan, the wow. former light welterweight world champion in the 1920s. He was a, a notorious Hollywood trainer after he uh, retired from boxing. Uh, and I was just cracking up, yeah, that this absolute legend. He did the original Kid Galahad. He did the remake. He did Gentleman Jim, you know? Um, and he said that that Elvis was a natural, but then you watch the movie and you just go like... What's going on with that? Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know Elvis did do karate in in the service, but uh, yeah, it, it's it is a very it's a strange film. You know, I'm I'm excited to to dive into it. Well, you know, I mean, I I can't help you know the 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 elephant in the room whenever you're dealing with one of these Elvis pictures is always sort of like just kind of seeing you know how these vehicles are just kind of 
cobbled together from other films and other genres and other mm-hmm. parts. But, you know, at the service of giving us the king, doing his thing, singing some songs, wooing some ladies, you know? And, and it's a testament to the film that in spite of, you know, how uneven a lot of Elvis pictures can, can be, like, the elements around Elvis are, as you mentioned in your introduction, I think handled very well. And this is where I got into, you know, that whole, like, there's, like, three movies in there. Yeah. Because there's all the Elvis stuff, but then there's all the stuff with Gig Young as this kind of, like, shady promoter guy that's trying to, to pay, you know, fight off his debtors. And then also somehow buried in there is this weird, you know, like, story of growth and redemption for Charles Bronson where I just feel like, I feel like Bronson's just giving so much more... It's then, crazy. Yeah, then, then he has to, you yeah. know? And it, it leads to, to a lot of, like, you know, you're, you're kind of, your focus on the film is constantly shifting between these three guys. And yet, there's fucking Elvis in there, right? So this is very clearly an Elvis vehicle, but there's a lot of really interesting things around it. And even further, there's the town itself of, of Cream Valley who plays their own sort of like Fordian role as, you know, these people who pop into the, to the life of the boxing retreat uh, and at a certain point start to exert influence, the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> and I feel like you, this is almost a dare to myself or Ryan, but I feel like what you're saying, Andy, is you could cut Elvis out of this movie and you'd have... Something approaching a Phil Carlson film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think so. I think there's like, yeah, apart from the fact that there are multiple films embedded within it, there are, they don't seem to relate to each other in an extremely meaningful way, at least in the way it like all overlaps. So I definitely think there's something that could be excised from it. And I, I want to go back to you mentioning, Andy, how much Charles Bronson gives in this movie because so this is a milestone for us it's amazing that we've gone 65 66 episodes without charles bronson on screen but i think part of that is because every time we think we're going to pick a charles bronson movie we think oh this is just i mean this is too much for us we just have to have a charles bronson week you know because he's just like such an object of obsession for us but when marsh picked the movie and i'm thinking okay here's this Elvis boxing movie, Charles Bronson happens to be in it. I'm sure he'll have a couple of lines more of like a, especially since it's the early 60s, it's not going to be like a full Bronson performance. But as Molly said, about halfway through this movie, Charles Bronson is great in this. And I mean, he is giving a real performance in this movie. And that was just something that really caught me off guard because it's, there's all these odd elements in the movie. Like, I mean, Elvis taking all those hits to the face almost seems like he's playing some sort of superhuman or at least someone where the, the pain area of his brain has just been completely severed. Like that's how cartoonish his ability to take a punch is. Hey, Walter, in case you want to duck once in a while, it ain't against the rules. But then there's something raw and real with Charles Bronson. And he almost, he feels really world weary, I was thinking, especially for such a young Bronson. I mean, I know I've seen movies with Bronson in the 50s and he looks like a little baby boy. But the stuff I've seen of him in the 60s, he still doesn't feel this old. And he really does resemble, I think, 
that you know world weary quality we see in later Bronson films, but all oh, the way sure. here in '62. They gave him a little dusting of gray on his yeah. pimples, you know. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. I mean, like, I was like mesmerized. I mean, I, I usually am by Charles Bronson, and, and it isn't just a Lithuanian film. You know, the guy is, 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 you know, magnificent. And, and even his bad movies to me, uh, he's just like an, an alien presence that mm-hmm. just demands my, my full attention. But, but when we're introduced to him, as you mentioned, Ryan, he's just like beginning his day with this coffee and there he's just like the, 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 the weight of the world seeming on, seemingly on his shoulders. There's so much sorrow. And there's this strange interaction he has with, uh, with Gig Young's girl. What was her name in the movie? Um, Dolly. Dolly, you know, where she's like, you know, how's it going? And he's just like, it, it's almost this like Eugene O'Neill like <laughs> level response answer, yeah. you know, about like, you know, basically just like feeling miserable about, about everything. And, and then even like flipping it around on her and saying something like, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than a suspicious dame in the first thing in the morning. You know, it's like, yeah. it's just this like really heavy moment. Like what is going on with this guy? And, and we don't really know, you know, we don't really get a whole lot from his character other than his performance and and the way he he moves throughout this film the way he talks to characters the way he he looks at his fucking cup of lukewarm black coffee it's 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 incredible for me just to just to really kind of give him my own backstory you know did you either did either of you pick up too isn't doesn't he have a slight limp as yes. well he does there's something wrong yeah. with his legs never addressed no other than no. his performance but it's yeah but it's clearly like something that stopped him from boxing right and it's just like these two quick pov shots from elvis just looking at his legs and then it's never mentioned again yeah he does seem to be the only character in the film that experiences real pain you know because of course elvis just getting punched in the face until there's a little bit of red paint seeping out of his nose that's part of the idea of this like superhuman boxer but you know this is getting way way ahead of ourselves but at one point bronson's hands are like destroyed by some tufts and Bronson's performance of having his like fingers broken and holding his hands up crossed in front of his chest, it feels real in a way that the rest of the movie doesn't. Like that was a Phil Carlson violent touch oh, that Bronson yeah. was fully on board for. Yeah, it was a grotesque moment, you know, and even the delay, right, where at first we only see his facial expressions. We don't see what they did to his hands and 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 the misery. And the, the sweat, you know, seeping out of his, his his grimmest face, you know? I mean, it's incredible. Like, yeah. Again, it's why, like, there's so many moments where this film just takes, like, these 90-degree turns into something else entirely. And you forget until Elvis, you know, wanders in and starts mumbling <laughs> or something like that. My husband, Elvis. That's right. Right, know? right. Yeah. Kid Galahad, there he is. I mean, I think that, yeah, in uh, there's a really great uh, appreciation of Carlson in film comment by Nick Pinkerton. And he singles out that moment and he says, you know, sort of, again, in, in 
talking about what Carlson brings to the table. He says, it's the only film with the Colonel Tom Parker credit in which Charles Bronson has both of his hands broken by mobsters. <laughs> and I mean, for how controlled Elvis's image was, I think that's what's interesting here is this Carlson film that is intruding. Um, that line that Bronson has at the beginning is so evocative, right? When Dolly asks him, Lou, I asked you what's wrong. Please, doll, you got 10 human tigers out there waiting for my fatherly advice. And yet, like, yet on his face, we can see he has no idea what to tell them. That's where his misery is. Absolutely. And I think it's it's such a great contrast to the gig young performance, which is another one that to me is, is yeah, this just like shitty Carlson character who is an alcoholic, who refuses to marry his girlfriend who's lived at the gardens for three years. He's, uh, he's, yeah, he's dodging repo (laughs) men. He's dodging DAs. He's dodging mobsters. And he is, he is just, sort of mean and cruel to everyone. And I, and I think it's part of the, the sort of insecurity, but uh, he's just unpleasant, yeah. you know? And a testament to Gig Young as well, who's you know, a very underrated actor. And it's funny thinking about that Charles Bronson POV of the legs and the way everyone's dodging all of these things in uh, Kid Galahad, but there's it's a funny kind of, kind of connection, actually, between this film and something I took away from as uh, you know, like an unseasoned boxing man and my understanding of these two guys, there are obviously lots of POV shots in gentleman Jim of Errol Flynn's dancing legs, the way that Jim can dodge a punch, you know, cause that's the two things I took away when I'm looking at these two boxers, they both seem to have like a magic glove that they can just KO someone once their moment strikes. But leading up to that, we have Elvis, who is just repeatedly being punched like a toy. <laughs> just <laughs> exactly. He gets pummeled over and over again in this right. movie. <laughs> the amount of shots that he takes to the head <laughs> would kill <laughs> right, you know? right. And he is just like, thank you, sir, may I have him? And that's why Rose is so worried about him. I do think there's like a progressive element to the film where she's sort of like, think this is bad for your brain you know they like bring it up i mean like and not wrong you know but then generally gentleman jim jim corbett he is he's such a dancer out in the ring that he almost never gets hit he's he's the master at dodging because he has such unbelievable speed and grace as he moves around yeah and that is you know for me again as like a as a as a big boxing fan boxing aficionado and someone who Again, loves a lot of boxing movies. Uh, you know, I, I, I always have to like forgive in so many Hollywood movies, just boxing movies in general, how they often take the approach of trying to make boxing like so much bigger and more dramatic and, and violent than it even I mean it's still a very violent sport, but but it's it's you know, Kid Galahad falls into the trap that you see in so many other boxing movies where a match is is literally just two guys with their guard down, playing <laughs> haymakers until you know one of them finally is like, "I've had enough," or gets his block totally knocked off. Mm-hmm. But to me, the thing that really impressed me about Gentleman Jim, how ahead of its, uh, uh, just how ahead of the game it is in their depiction of the fights that are just steeped in so much more authenticity. You know, the point of boxing 
if you had to sum it up to me, if I had to tell you, like, well, how, how do you win a fight? Well, you don't get hit and you hit right. the other guy. <laughs> like, that's the key. <laughs> and I think, like, right. you know, Rocky is a huge part of how that got, you know, poisoned in people's minds, certainly in a more modern context. You know, but, no one's blocking in Rocky. But, right, there, but there's so many other boxing films that have come before Rocky where it's like, it's just guys just, 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 just totally just throwing like open arm punches, just swinging for the fences with every single blow. And, and like, again, it's, it looks more visually dramatic than what a boxing match is. Gentleman Jim really steeps into like what made Corbett such an important boxer. It's steeped in actually how he fought and the style that he brought, which was this dancing, defensive, highly mobile style for a heavyweight, which would go on to eventually influence guys like Muhammad Ali, you know, these heavyweights who were able to just simply outmaneuver their opponents. And and really from the first fight in Gentleman Jim, like I was thinking about, uh, you know, some of the other really great boxing movies that that really try to nail that 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 authenticity, like Michael Mann's Ali. Like the fight, the first fight in Gentleman Jim reminded me so much of what Michael Mann was doing in Ali, especially as you mentioned in your intro, Ryan, cutting two close-ups of body parts, showing us the footwork, the feet, that that really isn't about your hands. It starts with your foundation, your feet, your footwork. And generally, Jim, like, was just like, I, I was so into it from that first fight because it really did seem to me to understand, like, that boxing can be exciting in a movie, even if guys aren't just, just, just trying to punch through the other guy's head, you know, right. constantly until one guy, yeah, just, just basically gives up. Yeah, it's a perfect instance of film form and, and content, quote unquote, like in total harmony, right? Because like what Walsh and, and, and co are doing stylistically is its own rhythmic dance of editing, you know, the way the boxing matches are cut, to me are breathtaking. They're part realism, part poetry all romance of course because this is you know one of walsh's sort of sentimental romantic movies looking back at the time of mm -hmm. his youth but once you get in the boxing ring it's all about the detail and it's all yeah it's it's not uh exaggerating the fight to to make it palatable to audiences but it's using cinematic techniques and demonstrating to us like clearly to an audience with no words like this is what made this guy unique this is what brought the sport uh forward right and we see it again and again and it's like so exhilarating yeah and i think it's especially surprising too considering the fact that if if memory serves most of the fights in both films don't have music accompanying them you know, there's a lot more, you know, general excitement generated in Gentleman Jim, of course, because of what the camera focuses on, the way it's cut, the formalism of it. There's the appeal in Kid Galahad of just seeing Elvis getting punched in the face <laughs> over and over and over again. I do like how everyone calls him a meatball in the film. Yeah. Like, it's like part of, we should point out, like, it's a weird thing where it's like, 
it's part of the plot too, where people are like, why don't you block? You know, like it's so fucking weird anyway. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it, it was really just that. Like, it's surprising to me that, you know, both films do still seem committed to the fact that the visual representation of boxing on screen is enough that there doesn't need to be the swelling music that makes it extra dramatic as you would maybe see in other sports films here. Most of the fights speak for themselves. The sound of fists hitting meat, you know, over and over again becomes the percussive accompaniment for all of these scenes. There's better zingers in gentlemen, Jim too. I think that's like another aspect of the fights that we should remark upon is the incessant. And I mean that in a good way, cutbacks to the other characters because it's Mm -hmm. also telling the whole tale of the movie right the high society people his family the rough and tough irish you know the whole sort of like class dynamic at play in this film everyone goes to these fights and just like says funny shit and is like yelling at everyone well miss ware if i get knocked out i hope you throw a little water on me when you get knocked out mr corbett i'll throw some champagne on you well make sure it's good champagne (laughs) Hello, DeWitt. Best of luck, Corbett. Nice to see you. This is going to be sad. Corbett is a lamb being led to the slaughter. Well, he needs some of that conceit knocked out of him. (laughs) Or, you know, like his brother's mock boxing, you know, because they're so invested uh, in it. It really captures, like why boxing was what it was. It was just like this insane spectacle and everyone was so into it. Even in the first fight we see, which is like this ramshackle illegal fight, there's a great detail where the crowd isn't big enough to fully surround the ring and the the fans are running around this dirt boxing ring to where the action is and it's like this mob that's like ebbing and flowing in this like amazing high angle shot that walsh reuses again and again in the film to show us the dynamic space of the ring he goes up high and just to see everyone run around i mean like oh yeah crazy yeah the crowd work as we mentioned earlier yeah it's 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 incredible in this film and why classic Hollywood films, uh, for me, are, are you know, ceaselessly enthralling. Just having all these bodies fill a space and the ability for filmmakers to manage all of that, to give us grand scale, large scope, and get then also laser focus in on this guy's dancing feet in a ring, the small and the large, as Krakow would say, it's truly cinematic. But also the progression that the film has towards like the size of the bouts, which is you know something you just mentioned, Marsh, that, that I, I also really think is handled so well in this film, that as much this is a story about James Corbett, uh, it's also a, a film about the history of boxing itself, you know, and how it progressed how it grew to, you know, this large sport being broadcast on network television into everybody's home. Uh, we begin, yes, in like some, some you know, on the edge of town, in a place where you could put these fights on without cops finding out about it. And it's just a couple guys thrown into this ring. And then once the cops do 
come in and, and stop the fight and kind of bust it up. I loved how all those guys get thrown in jail together and then they're all kind of sitting there in jail, the fighters, you know, the, the crowd. And they're just like, well, let's start it back up in here. You know, a guy jumps up, give me some room, give me some room here. You know, and Errol Flynn like instigates the fight again just for everyone's entertainment. And the spectacle that seems so limited and so niche and yet by the end of the film, we're in one of the largest sporting complexes in America at the time in New Orleans, you know, and it looks like there's thousands of people in this arena cheering on this heavyweight title fight. I mean, that progression uh, is handled so well. throughout. And it's funny, that's actually a great contrast between the two films. You mentioned we're just talking about the great crowd work in Gentleman Jim. Uh, there are certainly some scenes in Kid Galahad that are some really sloppy and lousy crowd work. The moment that really comes to mind for me, and I can't remember the song they're singing in that scene, but it's at the like lobster bake where they have like that big outdoor picnic. And when Elvis is singing to Rose, who is the girlfriend that he sort of starts dating in the film, she's sort of like Audrey uh, in Twin Peaks in, in her appearance. And she seemingly has like maybe five lines in the whole movie. She almost never speaks and there's a scene of him singing to her with all of these people around and the thing it most reminded me of was some of the large-scale musical numbers in Gas Pump Girls where everyone in the background was totally out of sync uh, in terms of their clapping and just like trying to keep up with whatever Elvis was doing. There's also a few people like buried in the background who didn't think they were quite on camera, so are grimacing and making really weird faces because they just kind of wanted to look at Elvis's butt or something like that. And there's also like one boy in particular, this little boy with a bow tie, and he's a little bit elevated amongst everyone else. I think he's standing on a picnic table, and his efforts to attempt to clap, I mean, I'm, I'm my eyes were fixated on him like I was never looking at Elvis I was so obsessed with this boy and um, yeah you know there were a few scenes where I actually think like the singing along was kind of nice with some of the crowds but the major crowd scene in Kid Galahad um, really could have used the touch of Raul Walsh or just Phil Carlson working on something he really cared about Thinking about this, uh, about Gentleman Jim as, as chronicling the, you know, the history of boxing, it's something that I was pondering when I was watching it, Andy, about the film's relationship to the Second World War, because this is a wartime film, and you always got to ask yourself for fun, like, what is going on here? in looking at the film as a war film. And uh, I, I was kind of pondering that and, and 
you know, maybe I'm not smart enough. So, so I cracked open a book uh, and I found this amazing reading of this that I want to share with you. This is from Knockout, the boxer in boxing in American cinema. Uh, and they write, Gentleman Jim cultivated attitudes which, on the one hand, reinforced the war effort, and on the other, distinguished it from established conventions of the boxing genre. The protagonist represents new techniques that allow a fighter to triumph while remaining unscathed. Such developments serve to reassure the public that the American soldier would be protected by the modern methods adopted by the armed forces. Furthermore, the picture looks back to the 19th century to remind the audience of fundamental American values that are worth fighting for. Family, upward mobility, progress, and fair play. And I was like, And Irish ancestry. (laughs) Yes. This is why Virilio, so many years later, would say that that Fred Astaire's dancing legs would carry people into the the enlistment office. Seriously, the idea of getting up, of moving, of of physicality, of of bravado, of masculinity in different forms, like these things were a call to action, a call to arms in their own ways. And so, yeah, in in that regard, like this film definitely fits into that mold, you know, and especially to the point that you brought up uh, with like training. You know, so much of the emphasis here for him throughout this movie is his technique, his skill, his training. And that was something that Corbett was known for historically, was like bringing in the idea of advanced training for boxers as athletes. Because prior to that, yeah, the, 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 the great boxers were usually guys who could just take a lot of punches. They were these like freaks in nature, these physical behemoths. I mean... John L. Sullivan, the guy that he eventually dethrones in the film, arguably the first, you know, recognized heavyweight boxer in the world or whatever. I mean, this guy had 450 some odd fucking fights in his career. <laughs> and at a time when they didn't have the Mark West and Queens Bay rules. So it was a round went until a knockdown and the fight went however long it went you know it wasn't oh like God. 12 rounds or 15 <laughs> rounds or 20 rounds i mean there are stories of early boxing matches you know uh from john l sullivan's day where the match would actually go on for days where they would just have to take breaks because it's like this ends with a knockout that's what this ends with and until we get a knockout these guys are going at it but you even see that idea of training contrasted you know when we get towards that big heavyweight title fight we see the way that Corbett is training, and it is a more scientific method. So it even uses that phrase at a certain point, the scientific art of self-defense. That's what Corbett is taking part in, you know, with these new rules where you know that our British you know our British allies have shown us, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> when we contrast Corbett, you know, working out in the gym and, and you know, eating clean. To John L. Sullivan, just basically like sawing logs at one point as part of his training, and then just like punching guys out and then chugging beer. You know, yeah. like he's this sort of brutish figure that represents, you know, an untrained power. And and Corbett's Corbett's you know ascension is through his devotion to training. Yeah, and I think that's like. It- 
for for how beautiful and romantic and amazing this movie is, I mean, there's disturbing implications about, uh, again, the class element of the film. Sullivan being this actual man of the people and Corbett being this, yes, aspirational kind of like wants to, you know, be catapulted into high society. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and where was I going with that? Well, I also think that that relates, yeah, a bit to the World War II element as well. You know, like the film does take this position of you don't need to be an elitist to be a hero. You know, like your contributions to the war effort don't just have to be through bonds. You don't have to be like wealthy in order to really be a hero in America. Like you can be lower middle class and still provide your Irish grit into the war effort. You know, sure. so there was like an inspirational element of that. Yeah. Like watch yourself rise through the ranks and come out as a tough hero. Like watching it now, I just go like, this is the co-option of boxing by the corporation. This of is course. the beginning yeah. of capital flowing into organized boxing, socially approved boxing. It's yeah. the same thing that cinema went through with all the battles over censorship and what could be shown and what was appropriate and could middle class people go to the cinema could upper class people go to the cinema you know like this is all happening at the same time as boxing you know and you see that in the film because so much of the emphasis even for like his journey uh is is placed on like the money that's going to put up these fights and surround these fights and it is a huge element of like, boxing you know promotion is is a purse you know people have to put up money but there's a lot of that in this film by showing us the sort of benefactors and and you know part of the humor in the film at first is that you know the he as this middle class driver has sort of conned his way into this club, this uh, this athletic club, the, the Olympic, Olympic club, right? For yeah. for these you know oil barons and gold miners and things like that in San Francisco, and and he is this sort of upstart, and he's viewed as as an upstart by the other members of the club, and at first it seems that they put up the money that they create this exhibition just because they want him to get his ass kicked. What did I tell you? There he goes, having himself paged again. Well, boys, we might as well face it. Something's got to be done about Corbett before he drives us all crazy. Or somebody kills him. He doesn't really mean to be such a pain in the neck, Jerry. It's just a natural gift with him, like boxing. Why do we have to put up with a bore just to have a boxer? Confound it, this is a social club. Let him take his biceps somewhere else. Corbett's a type, and you can't take offense at a type. It's no use. The offensiveness isn't really individual. Has he ever pushed you off the flying rings, just playful-like? Or tickle you when you're on the parallel bars, just to see what would happen? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if there was only some way we could pin his ears back and put him in his place. So they're trying to exclude him, but as the film progresses, you know, especially in the United States of America, everybody loves a winner. So when Corbett starts to win, the money shifts. And even though there are still elements that are hostile to him as this sort of, you know, uh, this class invader, whatever, you know, he's perceived as at first, like, he becomes accepted by them, you know? And even given the, at first, mocking moniker of Gentleman Jim, because he's not a gentleman yep. then, 
He's an arrogant prick who has himself paged just to seem like a big... <laughs> <laughs> right. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. Any mail for me? Uh, what's the name, please? Corbett. James J. Corbett. I'm a new member. Uh, no, sir. No? no, sir. Nothing? Oh, uh, say, uh, you don't have to have a cigar, do you? Yes, I have. Oh, thanks very much. <clears throat> Listen, I'm going to tip you off to something. No, sir. You see that statue over there? Yeah. Well, that doesn't belong down here. Why don't you have it moved up in the gym? Very well. We'll huh? have it moved. Good. Mm-hmm. Nothing like a good smoke. How many cigars do you smoke a day? Oh, any given number. <laughs> See you later. Paging Mr. Crocker. Paging. Listen, I'm a new member. James J. Corbett. I'll be in the card room. Have me page there, will you? All right, sir. And of course, it's fucking Errol Flynn, you know? Like, it's such perfect casting for this character. But, but yeah, you know, like, the, the, the film does have a lot of class politics here, but as you mentioned... You know, at the end, in that classical Hollywood tradition, in this time of, of, you know, the grand rediscovery of America during World War II, all hands are on deck and everyone plays a role. From the money guys down to the bodies who are going to be thrown into violent physical meat grinders, you know. There's also the ultimate irony that I think the film, like, alludes to several times, which is also that, like, the the upper crust of San Francisco are fake new rich people anyway. They were all just like had nothing or, and struck gold in the gold rush or whatever. So even they're sort of like putting on a front and that's the ultimate, I think, irony uh, of the film. And yes, it serves that that all hands on deck kind of kind of thing we see here. Sure, and also the thing that often gets dangled in Hollywood films, particularly the the the, the fantasy of upward mobility, right? Yeah, and I feel like that that's not a fantasy that Elvis necessarily has dangling in front of him. He's much more of like a humble, simple man in his film. He's not necessarily looking for glory. You know, Elvis is, he wants to open up his own garage. You know, he wants to be a mechanic and, and live a simple life. I, I did love when he was working on his like old, you know, beat up car that as he's like aspiring to just like own a garage in his hometown. Charles Bronson has that fantastic line. I don't know. What are you going to do with that besides wear it for Halloween? It could be beautiful, Lou. Beautiful? Come on, kid. You haven't taken that many punches. Uh, you just don't know character when you say it. This thing has got more character than anything I've ever seen. Oh, but now it's got character. But it is funny that, like, with that distance then, thinking about this film in 1962, here's Elvis who even in his first fight after he gets punched a bunch and then KOs that guy, his line in response is, do I still get my $5? He's just doing honest work. You know, he, he doesn't want to, you know, fake it till he makes it in the athletic club. He just wants his own little garage, his girl. He's just taking it one step at a time. And, you know, Gentleman Jim is not the only film that features characters arranging a fight uh, out of spite and out of interpersonal relationships because yeah. the uh, climactic fight in Kid Galahad is Elvis versus Sugar Boy Romero. And that entire fight is set up because Gig Young's character uh, is jealous slash pissed slash having a lot of feelings about Elvis getting engaged to his sister, Rose. And so he freaks out and basically wants to see 
Elvis destroyed. So uh, he arranges for, you know, like the hottest, the hottest boxer in the Baja to uh, to come on out and fight our man uh, in a July 4th event put on by the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's also that element there of the, the, the organized crime sort of looming around it as well because they see the opportunity for you know, making some serious money off of this fight as well, especially because of Galahad's popularity. Both films have the, uh, the sort of like hometown friends and family who are like betting their life savings on their on their <laughs> friend, their, their, you know, their community member, their neighbor, and everyone else is betting on the other people throughout both movies, which is nice, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, smart gambler uh, once told me, bet with your head, not with your heart. <laughs> no one is doing that in either of these films. And, uh, it's because they're brazen Irishmen, you know. That's this film. These both of these films are just like peak Irish representation, which is a funny thing to think about. I mean, we have, you know, Grogan's Gaelic Gardens. We have whole celebrations of people just <laughs> obsessing over corned beef in Kid Galahad. Oh just like my The God. delicate way they cut the beef and share it with each other. They're almost smelling it. You can sense it's just like an object of fascination and love for their culture, you know. And then there's that. There's that insane Irish dance song in Gentleman Jim when the whole family's dancing in the room. Get down and play the tune. Oh, not now, Paul. Oh, yeah, Mary. Oh, Mary come, on. come on. play. What am I doing paying for all these lessons if you're not going to play? Pat, sing us a song. That I will. That's Line up, Pat. Mary. <laughs> shake hands with your uncle, Mike Maylan. Shake hands with your sister, Kate. And here's the girl you used to swing down in the garden gate. Hope you make a land with all of the neighbors and kiss the Colleen's all. You're as welcome as the flowers in May to dear old Johnny Gold. What do you mean barging in here like a herd of wild elephants? Just wild stuff. <laughs> yeah. Just which is from from what I remember, just uh, a roll call of Irish surnames. <laughs> the corned beef thing reminds me of uh, maybe a whole other movie within Kid Galahad <laughs> that we haven't talked about, and that's the one uh, with Maynard, the chef. The chef, who is yeah, oh my God. An extremely prevalent character at the Gaelic Gardens and he has the great line at the picnic where he's uh, served lobster and he says uh, I ain't saying this lobster is for the birds but I'd rather be eating my own corned beef <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he also at a certain point says something uh, you know he's, he's talking to a character I forget what the context was but he was basically trying to imply that something wasn't worth you know wasn't worth the, 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 the paper it was printed on and he says something like you know that's worth about as much as a chopped chicken burger <laughs> as he's like eating the largest sandwich I've seen a man eat in any movie you know? I got really jazzed when uh, Elvis was digging out this old buggy from uh, from the barn, uh, and Bronson has a nice quip. He says, uh, "Expect to find in there, John L. Selvig." Hey! Oh wow! 
know, that's funny. See, I watched Kid Galahad first, so had no frame of reference oh. for who John L. Sullivan was, so hey, I missed that. About yeah, I don't know a thing about it. That's a, that's a fun little connection, though. Yeah. But I think I think that, that leads me back to, like, I guess trying to connect these films as a history of boxing is interesting because given that Walsh's portrayal is so romantic and upbeat as we've sort of discussed kid galahad then is a nice kind of sequel because of the the more explicit you know like organized crime element and some people uh, even remark throughout the film like i don't like what's happened to the fight game you know people sort of like say stuff like that and so we already have the mid-century cynicism, uh, which I'm sure was always there to a certain extent in sort of like a gambling operation. Well, I feel like, you know, for all the boxing movies I've seen and just conversations about boxing that I've had over the years, uh, I think it's such a, a trope within all boxing movies, especially of having old timers talk about how the fight game ain't what it used to be. And both films yes. have that. Even in, Corbett's dad. Yeah, dude, even in fucking Gentleman Jim, where it's like, this is like the birth of boxing. They're like, oh man, it ain't what, like, what, what it used to be. You know, when these guys would fight for four days straight, no name bare knuckle behemoths just beating the shit out of each other in a barn. Yeah, Papa Corbett is emphatically pro bare knuckle. Yes, yeah. <laughs> he sees the cops and he says, what? what the hell are these? These look like boiled lobsters, you know? It's, it's, yeah, it's always in there. It's old timers talking about how the guys in the past did it better. You know, we had much better players and, and greater drama back in the day. I mean, look, there's, there's scenes of that in Jim, there's scenes of that in Kid Galahad, where you have this like Jewish member of the Chamber of Commerce, listing all these great Jewish fighters, and then the priest even, wait a second, and throwing out some guy named Murphy or something. <laughs> you know? Like, dude, even in, uh, what is it, uh, uh, Coming to America, there's the hilarious scene at the barbershop where they're just talking about all the old fighters of the day. Like, that's just such a boxing thing. Do the right thing, you know? The fighter's on the wall. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, is, it is a fact that if you're making a boxing film, whoever's fighting is not nearly as good as some guy from 30 years ago. <laughs> no one's sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a radical contrast between the sanitized version of boxing that we see on literal televisions in Kid Galahad versus the massive boxing fight that's set on the docks in Gentleman Jim, that amazing sequence where I found out uh, just reading a little bit about the trivia, that boat. So there's this, this whole boxing set piece next to like a giant ship. And the, it was actually the same boat that was used in another uh, Errol Flynn film, The Seahawk. Oh, I'll bet it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, think about the difference between Elvis on, you know, the comfort of television uh, for these families in 1962 and then th this fight where if you fall out of the ring you land in the in the river you know which does happen and, and, and gentleman jim himself climbs back up and, and ends up winning the fight even after receiving a big dunk which actually was probably pretty refreshing all things considered and again i love the the, the little class politics in there with the that that sequence where they're fighting on the water where you see the the sign posted for tickets, you know, and you have the different sections. Barge, $1. Wharf, 50 cents. Schooner, 
25. So you, <laughs> and you see like three distinct crowd sections, you know, the people at the big ass scooter from Sea Dogs or whatever. And uh, yeah, the folks standing there on the wharf and then all the people who are, you know, trying not to get knocked over by the fighters into the bay or the river or wherever the hell they're fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And then like the police come in at the end oh and just God. like wreck the joint and, and are everyone, beating everyone with Billy clubs. Yeah. 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 Like, it turned into the Seahawk for like 30 seconds. <laughs> I've seen that shit. That's a lot of extras. I think my favorite like moment in the film was just that was the cops showing up. And at first I loved it because as the fight is getting, you know, getting underway, uh, the sheriff runs up with like, a warrant to, to tell everyone that the fight's on, and everyone just picks him up and just dunks, dunks him his ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then they had to bring in the reinforcements to bust it up, you know? It's yeah. amazing. It's so I, I did really love that sign that mentioned, you know, the, the different levels of tickets and where you would sit. There were so many little period details like that. Or not even little, just there was so much great period detail throughout Gentleman Jim, like even outside of just the costumes. Like when we're visiting some of these locations and like that, there's this one amazing sequence in a bar when like John L. Sullivan struts in and we just hit like the way the set is designed and it's so detailed. There's just so much to look at. And there's that one like I keep thinking about you know I mentioned Don Siegel earlier there is this like amazing flourish with a, a photograph up on I think it's in a bar like up on the wall celebrating oh, yeah. you know, like oh here's our heavyweight champion and we see like an image of a boxer and the camera moves in to that that photo comes to life and we see gentleman Jim KO that guy just completely knock him out image freezes we we move back out and then that image is now the new picture in the frame in this bar and i'm like man 1942 like that's an incredible gesture and like an awareness of the space oh my Very god inspired. Well, i mean i'm so glad you mentioned siegel because it's not just a, a random bit of trivia the montages in this film are absolutely central and i know mm -hmm. siegel talked about you know where did he learn how to make films doing montage department nine to five you know and in the climactic fight between corbin and sullivan all of a sudden it turns into a don siegel montage because it's like a 20 something round fight and so it's classic hollywood how do you get from round three to round 23 well you get don siegel to start cutting to telephone wires and ticker tape and it's this gag that starts with a guy ringside smoking a cigar and then it dissolves to all this action people betting you know people at home all this all over the country people are paying attention to this fight and it comes back to this guy and his cigar is down to a nub oh, yeah. you know like they're they're like live you know wiring the, the details of the fight over and i love that detail because yeah he's still in the telegram he's sweating bullets and he's exhausted from that i was thinking man you wind up with carpal tunnel after this fight easy on that telegram machine but the period details yeah there's so many that that just really warmed my heart uh and and again you know we've done an episode once uh a, a long time ago now it feels like nostalgia for for an era that that you know we didn't experience and this film definitely made me nostalgic not just for like classic hollywood in the 40s but like this this 1990s yeah, yeah 1990s <laughs> right like 
Uh, and again, you know, I'm speaking, of course, from a very privileged position, but you know, it's like the 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 bar stuff. There was just this one like uh, scene where we, we arrive at a bar and the camera is just like panning down the like list of drinks and just the, yeah. the, the list of drinks. It was like just and you guys know I'm a big fan of a punch. The right? so listeners at home, I like to when I have guests over make. Uh, my special punch mix, you know, and, <laughs> and there were just so many different types of punch listed and, and scenes of people just, you know, dipping ladles into these big, huge punch bowls or probably 90% booze. And I think it's also a nice tie into a boxing movie that everyone's drinking punch. But yeah, the, <laughs> the San Francisco punch, Pecone punch, Sazerac's champagne punch. My goodness gracious, this movie really made me want to just have a big old studio punch. And another really interesting period detail, and this was something I didn't know existed, was how these boxers would have sort of theatrical performances of some sort that were showcasing their abilities. I don't even know if you would call them theatrical performances, but they were housed in like big palaces inside of where like, you know, it was a stage production. So we, Marsh had brought up the great wood cutting scene where we have John L. Sullivan, like with these giant logs and he's just whacking them on stage before the curtain goes down. Also kind of a funny throwback to Vaca when we had our other, you know, ax cutting competition on the gauntlet. But yeah, it was amazing thinking about going to just paying a ticket and going to see a boxer strut their stuff on stage. Well, Ryan, I don't know if you did any actual research into John Corbett, but he was also an actor who eventually did star in films in the silent era. Uh. The guy did, like, you know, levy uh, his, his success in the ring into a, a, an acting career. Uh, and he was in quite a few, quite a few films. But, but did I, he I ever play the Dane? <laughs> no, I don't know about that. I don't know. You know, his dream was to, to win, you know, twenty five thousand dollars to buy, buy a theater and, and and perform Hamlet. But but uh, you know, the, the movie does play with that. You know, we show uh, the the film does show him like talking about how much he wants to be an actor, and and I think the realities of that are that look, you know, it isn't really until like the modern era that athletes in any sport could actually make a living doing what they did these guys so much skimming you know yeah these guys did not make a whole heck of a lot of money probably until like the 70s and the 80s in almost any sport really but boxing was one of the sports that did see fighters certain fighters anyway like make money off of what they did the purses could be so much larger it was a much more popular sport before Baseball became a, a big money sport before football became a big money sport. Boxing was the big money sport. Yeah. And you know, Ryan, I do want to say again, you know, you know, I'm not trying to pile on here because you don't know much about boxing, but there's, you know, <laughs> there's a modern lineage here for uh, gentleman Jim, Manny Pacquiao, the great boxer Manny Pacquiao, uh, used to organize his his fights uh, alongside concert in which he would sing so usually he would have his fight and then the next Whoa. day in the philippines he would play to like a hundred thousand people just singing filipino pop songs so i think you know 
there's still a, 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 a trajectory here from, from the good old days of Gentleman Jim to the modern world of boxing. Sure. I mean, yeah, you'd have to you have to be a performer through and through, I think, to really be a successful boxer. I think that adds up. Yeah, absolutely. Much but, like Elvis. You know, but that's the, the funny part <laughs> being, the funny part being that, again, when you go back to Keith Gallagher, like, this guy is just, all he's doing is singing. When everybody wants him to just become a better fighter and defend himself, for God's sakes, the first thing you usually learn is defend yourself at all times. And this guy, he just wants right. to grab a, grab, a, grab a seat next to some guys with a guitar and start singing love songs to anyone who will listen. Maybe that's why Bronson's so depressed, you know? Because, <laughs> yeah. Dude, I was like, thinking of the scene. You know, again, this is like a problem that I've always had with the Elvis movies, right? It's like, it's it's just that it's Elvis. You know, so you were even joking, like, I'm probably just going to call Elvis because you can't hide. Walter. <laughs> yeah. Walter, right? Yeah, you cannot movies were 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 manipulated to be vehicles for his stardom, his persona, and for selling fucking records, you know, selling Elvis records. And and sometimes it is worked into his films organically, and there are times when it is really just just like beaten into there with a ball peen hammer. And I was thinking of like one of the most cringe and awkward scenes of the film is is when you know, Gig Young, Charles Bronson, and, and Elvis are like driving to one of his fights. And Bronson and Gig Young are in the backseat. Elvis is driving and just like singing this like perfect fucking pop song. And poor goddamn Charles Bronson has to have this stupid smile plastered on his face and paying like rapt attention to the king as he sings his goddamn song to sell a fucking single. Like, you know, those are, are moments that it's again, it's like if you just take that dumb fucking thing. <laughs> I mean, but it wouldn't be what it is that I guess you take It's that. true. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, in a sense, it's depressing because I know that Elvis harbored deep feelings toward acting. He wanted to become an, an actor for real. And he never got the opportunity to be an actor because every film has to be Elvis performing, singing, right? Like, imagine... Hear me out. Imagine Elvis on a Phil Carlson heist crew as the Patsy, you know? Like, just not being Elvis, you know? Like, it could work. It could have worked. Yeah. Or, like, uh, if you took Elvis and you put him into the Burt Lancaster role in The Killer. Yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Yes, like, total bimbo, himbo shit, you know? Just, like this clueless fool who's in over his head with a bunch of heavies played by everybody yeah yeah i'm with you on that that's brilliant yeah i mean and you mentioning bronson having to keep a stupid grin on his face in the car while elvis is singing did you see the bit of trivia that bronson never spoke to elvis for the duration of the shoot and just like kept his distance the whole time yeah apparently he hated him which is very funny to think about because he is he's very low key and tender in this movie, but then if you you read that and then you reinterpret it as like a simmering rage, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's like I had to get my hands busted for this fool, you know? Yeah, that scene is then like it's like his crucible of like what what this movie is for him. It's this moment of just like you know self-sacrifice and masochism that he has to like put himself through 
didn't make a buck in like 1962 in Hollywood. You know, I got to sit here with this fucking like this stupid big baby and I got to act with his bodyguards because they got to have goddamn right. roles in the movie, you know? <laughs> and I got this creepy curled Tom guy walking around. I mean, like, yeah, fucking. I can imagine Bronson kept his distance because if he didn't, he knew he was probably going to kick the shit out of Elvis, you know? And then he'd, that'd be the end of his career right there. So smart from Bronson. Yeah, there's a moment when Bronson is ringside while Elvis is in the midst of a fight and, like, he's supposed to be coaching Elvis and telling him what to do and you just hear hear Bronson like scream with such unbelievable rage grab him you know and like you can you can read into that a lot of rage potentially of Bronson one you know who knows how much of a professional Elvis was on set but I bet Bronson was just fed up with the antics of being on an Elvis production you know I think there's a lot of simmering rage there the man was a fucking coal miner all right he does not tolerate (laughs) fucking anything all right especially this music guy you know come on totally god yeah this really is uh, a rich film (laughs) as long as you don't really care about uh the elvis boxing stuff which again is, is funny in its own regard i mean i think Carlson brings a little flair to some of the boxing sequences. There's some good uh, punching of the camera perspective, you know, like. Yeah. And I'm sh- and I know Scorsese is stu- is a student of Carlson violence, you know, probably in other films. But uh, there's also in, you know, the big sort of like gangster fight scene that happens with with Bronson and Gig Young and and Elvis saves the day of course but in that there's a a beautiful just backhand slap and it is like the moment that reminds you like oh yeah this is Phil Carlson you know the same way if someone got slapped and it was fuller you would be like oh yeah you know yeah and then if just out of nowhere just a backhand slap to a gangster you know I got to say, though, the one thing that struck me while watching that scene where Elvis came in to, to help fight the gangsters a little bit is like, it's been established, very well established to this point that all he needs in a boxing ring with padded leather gloves is one punch to knock a guy out. There he is, bare knuckle, struggling against these, you know, chain smoking guys <laughs> from the Bronx or whatever, you know, <laughs> quite a few hits. To knock some of those guys out. Those mafia yeah. guys should have tried boxing then, if they could take it like that. Yeah. You know? Pulled out one of the guns <laughs> that they apparently were always carrying. He shot his hands. I mean, what the hell is going on? You know, I will say the one thing I was really disappointed on for Kid Galahad, and maybe I had like way too high of expectations, but I really was expecting there to be a scene where Elvis sang while boxing. I thought there was going to be a boxing match with a song accompanying it. And that would have been really interesting, I think. Busby uh, Berkeley would have there. done that. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, yeah, like, I guess that's that's ultimately the problem. There's clearly too many cooks in the kitchen. The Elvis stuff is, like, sequestered off from the movie. Like, people are afraid for it to interact with the rest of the CD Carlson goings-on of this lodge and these yeah. gangsters and these cases, you know? know like that are going on um everyone's always threatening him like not to testify in the grand jury you know like 
Yeah, Elvis can get a nice burger at Henry's Hamburger Haven, but he can't be involved in the real seedy goings-on of a Phil Carlson film. Exactly. And I could see a version where they're more integrated, but again, it wouldn't be an Elvis film. Instead, we get a boxing retreat picnic where you know people are doing the twist. It just seemed like throughout this movie that everybody was just like, there was all this like serious drama going on. <laughs> And, and and Elvis would like wander in a room and somebody would give him an errand. <laughs> it's like the, the fucking Bronson like Elvis walks up and he's like, hey, you, uh, you, you got this part laying around here? What is a car? And then Bronson like sends him a towel over. He's like, well, it's actually, uh, you know, get out of my hair. If you go one towel over, there's a pretty good repair shop. Go, go bother them. You know? Okay, they thought, man, we just want to wander out of the scene. You know, and then Ed Asner shows up. He's like, I'm a fed. Like, we got to talk about what's going on in the boxing game there. Elvis coming back. And like, tell him that part. You know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> you gotta give him something to do occupy his ass. And I think we should we should talk about a, an explicit connection then that I found uh, interesting uh, when when doing a little like Walsh uh, reading up, you know, uh, in uh, the true adventures of Hollywood's legendary director Raoul Walsh. The author writes uh, that uh, of all the films that Flynn and Walsh made together. In no other did Errol Flynn better inhabit Walsh's persona. The brash sentimentalist, the reckless bad boy, the charmer of women, the man who never stops longing for a chivalric world in which to be a knight. And so fitting, then, of course, that Galahad gets his name from the night of the round table that we've uh, discussed before on this very podcast <laughs> when we talked yes. about Lancelot Dulac. Mm-hmm. But the, the funny thing being that in Kid Galahad, when they talked about his namesake, they referred to him as kind of a square, and uh, I'm pretty sure he died young. <laughs> so what they think of that kind of sentimentality and chivalry in Kennedy's America of 1962. Well, then the ironic thing there, too, thinking about Errol Flynn as a chivalrous knight, this film came out at the exact same time that he was fighting those two charges of statutory rape in 1942, and they even considered, like, pulling the film. or They did some re-edits because he has a line at the end, I think, originally, where he says, well, I'm no gentleman or something like that, and they thought, like, He still "Eh, says that. Oh, he does? Yeah. Oh, no, never mind. Oh, no, I remember. And he the is anecdote. definitely not a gentleman. That's for yeah, sure. No, it's yeah, been well he established ha- in Hollywood history. <laughs> Yeah, he has that final line where he says, I'm no gentleman. And, and apparently audiences reacted so strongly to that at the time, like they jeered when he said that line, that when they then re-released this film as like a radio play, that line was removed because it caused such a stir at the time. Well, look, you know, we've been, you know, we've been talking here about two, you know, sort of problematic, uh, you know, figures uh, in in Hollywood and, and American history in Errol and uh, Elvis Presley. So I'd, I'd like to just take a moment to turn our focus on, on someone who's uh, very unproblematic, uh, Ward Bond. <laughs> uh, just, just 
just shine a light on this this beacon of civility. <laughs> I mean, no, in all seriousness, I, I have to say, you know, I am a huge fan of Ward Bond, the actor. I mean, you know, obviously. Oh, yeah. Bond the human, different story altogether. But my God, I didn't look up the cast for this film. So I, and I, as I said, I'd never seen the film before. So I had no what idea a treat. that I was going to, to be, you know, yes, uh, gifted with uh, Ward Bond. Of course it's fucking Ward Bond, it's yeah. John L. Sullivan. But I have to say, and I, I have a lot of great Ward Bond uh, performances in my, stored away in my brain. And as brief as his presence is in the grand scheme of this film, it is incredible. And now one of my favorites. Uh, what he does with this character which is what he does with so many supporting roles of his. He comes in like a goddamn fucking whirlwind and just immediately grabs the energy of whatever is going on and makes himself the fucking focus. I can lick any man in the world. <laughs> Mike, drinks for everybody in the house. Tonight the palace bar is taken over by John L. Sullivan himself. And I want to shake the hand of every one of you. Glad to meet you, Chief. I'm glad to meet you, sir. I saw you fight Kill Rain. Kill Rain, a great fighter, great man. Come on now, boys. Come on, the drinks are all on me. Get up there. Well, I'd be in Ireland a long time before ever this had happened to me. What's that, sir? Meeting and shaking hands with John L. Sullivan himself. Uh, well, that's fine, sir. That's fine. You know, I have a boy who's a fighter, too. Oh, well, I'd like to meet him sometime, sir. Come on now, boys. Come on, come on. And his performance in this as John L. Sullivan is... I mean, it's 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 beautiful, and and really, like everything that he does is amazing in this. The way he fights, his physicality of of making himself into the foil of dancing gentleman James Corbett, you know, as this sort of like brutish hulking figure moving and just simply, you know, plodding forward to try to use his strength to overpower the opponent. Like that's that's amazing. After he loses the fight, after he's beaten, the scene where he walks in by himself to the after party where everyone is celebrating this foppish dandy Errol Flynn, Gentleman Jim, that scene where he arrives, you know, again, referencing previous episodes of The Gauntlet and, and one that we did on, on Male Weepies. <laughs> that moment yeah, right yeah. there is a male weepy par excellence in itself. It's a movie unto itself. An Without amazing a doubt. moment of acting. I started to tear up during that scene. <laughs> and when I started to tear up, I remembered that when I watched Gentleman Jim the first time, I also did, and I was just like, God damn, God damn, you know, like I knew it was coming too, yeah. you know, it's really what I think of when, besides the boxing, when I think of this film, I think of that exchange at the end, and, and of course for Jim's journey, it's a moment of humility, uh, and he maybe learns a sliver of something, even though he's going to keep on being an arrogant prick, 
but Ward Bond, Andy, you are correct. This is like an all-time performance from him. And it's really wonderfully structured, too, how he's integrated into the film because you hear about him before you see him. And then he just starts bursting into rooms surrounded by people, surrounded by life, yelling really funny stuff and like buying everyone beers. And like, we're introduced to him over time through like three different scenes where he just like barges in somewhere. And it's like, Eating a steak and drinking six beers. Yeah. (laughs) And I just had, you know, when you see that, can't help but have a huge smile on your face. There's like one where like children are just like surrounding him like Jesus and like following him down the street. He's got his little top hat on. There's a whole parade. I mean, he's the people's champ. And I mean, again, it's it's toolbox in history. And and Ryan, I don't know if you looked this up or whatever, but like this moment we're talking about when Sullivan comes to him and, and and presents him with his prized possession, probably the only thing that ever mattered to him, this championship belt, and hands it over, you know, and it basically says, like, you know, you got it, but is also treated to, as Marsh mentioned, a little bit of Jim's maturity, you know, and, and his message is, hey, to Jim, it's easy to be a good loser, it's easy to be a humble loser, but but the humble winner, that's the real champion, that's the person that people will really fall in love with, that is a historical moment. Like this fight set a precedent that, you know, throughout boxing history is, is how championships are decided. And it's called, you know, the man who beats the man. And again, I think it's why boxing is of all the sports, one that is like treated so much more to cinematic representation. Because at its core, Boxing is a duel, a grand duel, one person versus another. And the team sports, there's so many more moving parts, it's so complex, but at the end of the day, like a boxing match is one person facing another. You know, it's like the Western. Two men will meet in a street and one will walk away victorious. And this moment is perfect way to put a bow on this whole journey and experience and to establish like the rich history and lineage of champions facing other champions and paying their respects it's 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 a breathtaking moment yeah it is a really nice symbol because i did actually read in real life uh sullivan had like hawked his his championship belt beforehand. Hell yeah! <laughs> so so it People's didn't happen king. like quite that way. Yeah, but you know it's it is a very nice moment. Yeah, in particular the line when he says, you know, how you doing, Sullivan? And and Ward Bond replies, ah, I'm a little tired. Um, there's just like such beauty in that. I mean, yeah, he's so charismatic in the movie. I feel like one of the like cliches in a film that has like a superstar in it or tries to build up a cult of personality within the film is the joke of, oh, if you shake hands with him, like you don't want to wash that hand. And it always feels like a bit ham-fisted. But that moment when Corbett's father shakes hands with John L. Sullivan and sincerely says like, I am never going to wash this hand. You can actually feel that energy in the movie because the way 
way that Ward Bond is strutting through it. I mean, I wouldn't wash my hand either. I'd celebrate that handshake for a bit. I mean, can I just <laughs> say too that that is a a masterclass performance by Alan Hale as Pat Corbett, the dad, because he is, you know, he is the zany, hilarious Irish dad that that Ford wishes uh, he could create. You know, <laughs> yeah. because I'm sorry, in in my experience, you know. Ford's humor is hit or miss. And uh, I originally read, Ryan, you'll think this is interesting, I hope. Uh, Walsh, immediately when he was pitching this movie to Jack Warner, he said, uh, we'll get the parents from How Green Was My Valley. (laughs) 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 So, like, already you can see the wheels turning in Walsh's head of, like, what this family is supposed to be like. And the fam... The fam... The brothers? Yeah. I mean, the man who beat it's incredible this irish family is is rendered in such vivid detail jim's got the longshoremen brothers who are you know his foils his tormentor but also like the reason he can box is because he had these tough you know working class brothers who beat the shit out of him and the corbett's are always uh getting into fights and they go into the barn the livery stable run by the father and, and all the neighbors yeah and i was feeling yeah very like sh- chicago also somehow in there you know the, the imagine, fighting irish I imagine john ford see this movie and just like just simmer <laughs> <laughs> and i mean yeah it's it's dynamic it's 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 everything, you know. I, I love this. I love this film. I really do. Kid Galahad, on the other hand, uh, very enjoyable. I had a great time. Andy, did you did pleasant. you have an okay time? I did. I mean, like I said, I, I enjoyed both of these movies for what they were. And and Kid Galahad is is the imperfect object, whereas Gentleman Jim is this like you know perfect symbol of, of when classic Hollywood could be it's like most harmonious uh, but mm-hmm. but yeah I mean I, I appreciate them both I, I would rather watch a gentleman Jim fight than a kid Galahad fight that's that's for damn sure who do you think would win in a real fight Elvis versus Errol Flynn Errol Flynn yeah without a doubt <laughs> I know How about Australia, the Australian dirty. menace? Yeah. I know he'd start, he'd start playing dirty. He possible. Well, how about this? To, to, to mix it up, a three-man fight between Errol Flynn, Elvis Presley, and Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson. He'd knock them both down. Yeah, at okay, the same time. Okay, then what time. if we add Ward Bond into the mix and it's four men all free for all at each other. Too many variables. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one's losing Have you seen the end of the dirty dozen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's gonna be apocalyptic. <laughs> yeah, no, I was very happy with Kid Galahad though. I, I was happy to see Charles Bronson. I was happy to I was more than happy to see Burt Remsen. And as always, I'm very happy to see Deluxe Technicolor. Just a movie looking so nice, you know, out in the mountains. It's very pleasant to look at. Very yeah. colorful. Got a nice red great dresses, outdoors vibe. Yeah, especially since it's set in the Catskills, but it's actually just filmed in California again. Yes. But um yeah, lots of lots of things to enjoy. I think in that film, but I guess thinking about these great fights and who would win, who's going to lose. Andy, what are some of your favorite boxing matches that that you've seen on screen? Well, like I said, there's so many, and I think a lot of people uh, are 
very aware of you know some of the bigger ones or the ones that get a lot of attention. I mean, I will say I've never been a huge fan of the Rocky movies. I just like that they just draped and get his ass. Yeah, we, we've covered Stallone <laughs> quite a bit uh, in recent weeks on here, so I, I won't even dignify any of that. But um, I, I, I'd like to, I guess, like plug one that that I imagine a lot of people haven't heard of or haven't seen. That that is one of my favorite. Uh, movies about boxing, and that's a film from the 90s called The Great White Hike. And it is classic, it is amazing satire about the, the sorry state of modern boxing, the corruption, uh, the, 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 the bullshit, the, the lack of heroes. It's an incredible film, uh, a great comedy with a really, really solid cast. I mean, you're looking at Samuel L. Jackson, Damon Wayans, Jeff Goldblum, Corbin Burnson, John Lovitz, Jamie Foxx, a young Jamie Foxx. It is a hilarious movie. A hilarious set. Oh yeah, and Peter Berg. You know, the, the premise of the film is essentially that Damon Wayans is this, you know, black heavyweight title fight, you know, black heavyweight champion. And, and they've, they've come to realize these shady promoters led by Samuel Jackson that, that the biggest fights, the fights that sell the most money are when a black fighter and a white fighter enter the ring. And so there's all this racial politics in there as well. Peter Berg is a guy that they, they basically... Uh, build into this heavyweight title contender, even though he's never had a professional fight. They also start calling him Irish Terry Conklin, even though he's not Irish. And the character points out that's just another way of saying you're white in boxing. You know, it's a hilarious movie. I highly recommend it. Uh, I, I cannot sing that film's praise enough. It's it's great. So if you haven't seen it, folks, check out The Great White Hype. You will not be sorry. 90s classic. I really just remember Damon Wayans getting really fat before the fight, you know, very vivid. He's just like sitting around eating yogurt and shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, guys. I had a blast. It was Andy's turn this week. But it's Ryan's turn next week. What's on the docket? I've recently been reading. Uh, I've recently been working my Always way Always with this. the books. Can you believe this guy? <laughs> this is a movie show. Ryan's book book. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, I've been reading this just remarkable book. I, I've really loved it called Shadow Country by Peter Matheson. And it is a collection of, um, he had previously published the books in a trilogy um, and it's set during the turn of a century, the turn of the century in America, in the ten thousand. Uh, the, the, Raul Walsh the, or nine eleven. Raul Walsh. It's set during the Raul Walsh <laughs> turn of the century, uh, in the ten thousand islands region of Florida in the Everglades, and it follows this man Edgar Watson, and who is you know, depending on how you read him and understand him, either a desperado, potentially a serial killer, or maybe even more of a Charles Manson type serial killer that was sort of pulling the strings and getting everyone to do things for him. But regardless, the reason I've been so attracted to it is because the environment and the milieu is just so fascinating. Spending all this time in the Everglades in the early 1900s has just been such a treat for me to read and it got me thinking how about next week the topic be 
marshlands. Get me out to the swamp. Let's get in the muck. Let's look at bogs. Let's look at swamps. Let's look at Everglades. Let's let's cruise through the mangroves with our canoes. Just get me anywhere that you know. It doesn't have to be the Everglades. Just get me somewhere very swampy. Let's uh, let's move through slowly and take a look at what we find uh, beneath the murky water in the swamp. I approve the cross promotion. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at gauntletmovies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. When I found you. You know something? First time I saw you fight, I was just a bit of a kid. There wasn't a man alive could have stood up to you then. Tonight... Well, I was just mighty glad that you weren't the John L. Sullivan of ten years ago. Is that what you're thinking now? That's what I was thinking before I even got into the ring with you. That's a fine, decent thing for you to say, Jim. I don't know how we might have come out, oh, say, eight or ten years ago. Maybe I was faster then. And if I was, tonight, you're the fastest thing on two feet. Sure, it was like trying to hit a ghost. <laughs> I don't know much about this uh, gentleman stuff they're handing out about you. Maybe you're bringing something new to the fight game. Something it needs. It never got from fellas like me. I don't know. But I do know this. Though it's tough to be a good loser, it's a lot tougher to be a good winner. Again, John. I hope that when my time comes, I can go out with my head just as high as yours. There'll never be another John L. Sullivan. Thank you, Jim. Good luck to you. Good luck to you. Again, Galahad. We're just getting warm. You're getting warm, you're gonna melt the guitar. <laughs>